Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Hello, Kaleo. Again, it's really good to, to be here with you all. Um, as already introduced by Ben, my name is David Swindler. Uh, from Summit, born and raised, and uh, it is my great joy to just open the Word of God with you all and and get to enjoy the the riches therein. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 142. That's where I'm going to be preaching today, and I'd like to read through the psalm first before I begin. That's Psalm 142. The psalm goes, A masculine of David... When he was in the cave, a prayer. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the truth that is revealed in your word. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would speak the truth of this passage into every heart that's here. May it be all for your glory, Lord, and not for our own. May this be because of what you have already done for us, Lord. May we worship you in the way that we approach this passage, trusting you, letting you guide us, Lord God, and depending on you solely for our own salvation. I pray, Lord God, that you would be with us in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. A phrase, which is really common, uh, no matter where you look, in stories, uh, TV shows, books, uh, is the idea of a darkest hour. A darkest hour. Uh, This is the low point of a story whenever it seems like the protagonist has failed or lost. Uh, I think often about one of my favorite stories, The Lord of the Rings. And towards the end of the last book in that series, The Return of the King, uh, it seems like everything has just started falling apart. Uh, Right when you think that Frodo is going to destroy the ring, he is going to end all of the evil and suffering and pain in the world. He's just trekked up this mountainside even to get to this spot. He gets there. He's right there ready to end it all, and he fails. He fails to actually defeat the evil. He gets corrupted by the ring. He takes it for himself. And it seems like, if you haven't seen the story before, read the story before, it seems like all hope is lost in that moment. Because the one that you were depending on, the one that you were counting on, he has failed. And this, I feel like, so often shows up in stories because they speak deeply to our human condition. Because we all 
have been in those moments. In the depths of despair, looking, waiting for something to get better, something to turn up, and nothing shows, nothing happens. And whether this happened last week, or a year ago, or many years ago, um, we all know these moments. The darkest hour comes for all of us. And this is because we, we know that sin and suffering make this world a dark place for us, for the people we care about as well. Uh, there are days when God feels incredibly distant, when he feels like he doesn't care, he feels like he doesn't see us or know us. And David, in this psalm, is in the very same spot. He is currently on the run. Saul, the king of Israel, is hunting him down. And despite being the hero who slew Goliath, he even married the king's own daughter. He's a prince of the kingdom. Um, he has to run away from everything that he knows. He fled from his home. He's living life on the run. He's begging for even just bread. Uh, and he's narrowly avoiding Saul at every turn. In chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, it details that David had to say goodbye to one of his closest friends, in Jonathan. In chapter 21 in 1 Samuel, uh, David pretends to be insane in order to avoid being recognized by the king of Gath. And we find him in 1 Samuel 22, hiding very deep in a cave. He has fled further east of Gath, where he met with that king. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, moving towards the east always signifies that someone's moving away from God's presence, moving into sin. We think of Adam and Eve being exiled from the garden to the east. Cain flees east after he kills his brother. Uh, even Israel is taken into captivity in Babylon to the east. East is not the place you want to go. Uh, but this is where David finds himself east of Israel and hiding in a cave. But we don't just see David's story here in this psalm. Uh, we actually see David's heart. David here is in a very dark place. And no, not being in a cave is not literal. Um, he is at the lowest point since he's actually introduced as a character in 1 Samuel. Uh, this is David's darkest hour. And he is completely alone. No one is there to support him. The expectations that he had of being a king, being anointed by Samuel, uh, all of that seems incredibly far away. Doubt is overcoming David here. He feels like he has no refuge, nowhere to turn. The dark of that cave must have just felt suffocating to David. The promises that he felt couldn't be further away from the truth. So what does David do when he's at his darkest hour, when God doesn't seem to be showing up. And what do we do when we're in those moments, when we feel the same way, when we pray? That's what David does. He prays because prayer is all that he can do in this moment. And this is really unique because out of all that David suffered and out of all the Psalms that David wrote, all 150 of them, only four are labeled prayers, only four Psalms. And the fact that David prays here is telling because he really needs something. He needs God. And what we'll see as we go through this passage is that prayer points his eyes to something far greater 
than his present circumstances. They can do the very same for us in our present circumstances. And so to give us guardrails as we go along, I see this text as showing three main things about prayer. First, what prayer is. What prayer is. Second, what prayer says. What prayer says. And third, what prayer does. What prayer does. And these three aren't comprehensive. Uh, they're not going to be three easy steps to a perfect prayer life. Uh, we could have, I'm sure, uh, an entire sermon series preached on prayer. Uh, but I'll be sticking to this text and how it informs us about David's prayer life and how ours can be transformed through it. First, let's look at what prayer is. What prayer is. If you're anything like me, you'll find that sometimes when you read a psalm, you forget to pay attention to the first line of the psalm. Uh, in most psalms, it tends to be rather repetitive, some variation of, I praise the Lord, I call out to you, Lord, or something like that. It, it normally clues us into the psalm's tone, uh, but we can quickly pass on from it uh, to more impactful passages or, or more unique passages. Um, now, don't do this with other psalms. I need to work on that myself, but Psalm 142 is really unique in this regard because it doesn't allow us to skip the first line. And at first glance, it appears to start similarly to many other psalms. He says, I, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. That phrase, I cry out to the Lord, just with a cursory glance, I was able to find about six or seven other psalms that all start the same way. But in Psalm 142, it just doesn't stop. In the first two verses, the idea is repeated four times. Look with me at verse one. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. The same language appears again at the start of verses five and verse six with, I cry to you, O Lord, and also attend to my cry. And this is vital to our understanding of what David is feeling and what prayer is. Let's use an example to show why this is so important, so telling of his emotional state. Now, I have not been married very long, only about five months, but I have learned a few things. And the first thing, well, one of the first things that I've learned is that repetition underlines importance. Repetition underlines importance. If I check my phone and see that I missed a call from my lovely wife, Marissa, I might call her back right away, uh, or maybe I'm busy, and I can call her back when my work is done in, I don't know, say 20 minutes or so. But if I check my phone and realize that I have missed three calls from my wife, or four calls, five calls, even six calls from my wife, I can very quickly assume that there is an emergency going on. Why? Why can I assume that? It's because I know that her efforts to reach me underline a desperate need for something. If it was a event that could wait, then she wouldn't need to reach out so many times. And this is the same with David. He would not repeat himself so many times unless it was urgent, unless it was desperate. In fact, not only desperate, but you can get the sense from the psalm that David feels as if God isn't actually picking up on the other line. 
He's leaving voicemail after voicemail, pleading with God to hear his cries. And he's not even sure if God's listening. And those spoken in fear and worry and doubt, this fact shows us what prayer is. Prayer is a heartfelt cry of dependence before God. Prayer is a heartfelt cry of dependence before God. Because David has nowhere else to go with his fear. He cries out before God because God is all he has. He recognizes that his life, the state that he's in right there, is completely under God's control. It's no longer in his control. He comes into the throne room with nothing, expecting maybe even to be turned away by God. He's pleading for God's mercy. And this is how we can come to God with true prayer. When we recognize that there is nothing we can do for ourselves. Let me ask, what brought you to God in the first place? When you very first became a Christian, in all of our salvation stories, it was first a recognition of our own sin, our own weakness, our inability to save ourselves, followed then by a belief, an understanding of the grace that God so lavishly gives to us. And this is the sort of dependence that should inform our entire prayer life because we bring nothing to the table in prayer and God brings everything that we could ever need. If you think with me to the Lord's prayer, Jesus shows that we need for his will to be done, for him to provide, for him to forgive, for him to protect. Again, we bring nothing. God brings everything. And so if you're coming into church today from a week where you feel powerless, you feel overwhelmed by sin, know that there is nothing you can do to pretty yourself up before coming to God. Instead, come as David came. Come with weak lips, with faltering knees. And isn't it helpful to have Psalms like these in the Bible where David can barely bring himself to get to his request? Because when we feel this way, when I feel this way, we can so quickly bottle it up, afraid of our own fears and doubts, not wanting anybody to see, not wanting God to know those parts of us, feeling almost guilty for praying or wondering if God is tired of listening. But friends, God pursues those, not who help themselves, but who come to the end of themselves. And this is prayer, speaking to God in complete reliance on his will. Can I be honest? It's hard to get your prayer to that place. I oftentimes don't pray for my food, for my day, even sometimes for my marriage, from a heart that feels the overwhelming need for God to be present. But when I look at my life and I look honestly, I can see that the sweetest times of fellowship with God come from the moments when my weakness is most evident, when I cannot fix things, when I only need God. And as I've been reminded while writing and working on this sermon, I also want to remind you all that every single day, our sin is just as present. And we are just as much in need of God. I can convince myself that I have it all together But in reality, my life is only complete when I come before the throne of God. I throw myself with dependence, expecting God alone 
to provide what I need for the day ahead. And so, again, what is prayer? Prayer is a heartfelt cry of dependence before God. Next, let's look at what prayer says. And to see this, we'll look at verse 3 together. Verse 3 says, When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. And the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Now, I want to ask you all a question. Uh, who are the three people or groups of people talked about in this verse? There's three main ones. Uh, it starts with a statement about David, about how he feels. He's person number one. Uh, next, it has a statement about God, who God is. He says, you know my way, talking about God. That's person number two. Uh, and finally, it speaks about David's enemies. They have hidden a trap for me. Uh, we could even expand this to his circumstances, right? This whole situation that he finds himself in, being on the run, being hunted down. And so when we look at what prayer says, we can identify that David is talking about himself. He's talking about God. And he's talking about his situation or his enemies. Uh, but what is he saying? But very simply, David is just speaking the truth. And though not as uh, eloquent as my first point, uh, this is what prayer says. It speaks the truth. That's it. It speaks the truth to God. And let's break this down a little bit. Um, and let's do it through looking at these people. Um, in the previous point, we were able to see how David spoke honestly about his own internal struggles, his own fears, his doubts. And so I won't rehash that all here. Um, so we're going to look at first the truth of David's situation, the truth that he speaks about his enemies, and then the truth that is spoken about God. So let's look at the truth of David's circumstances. From the end of verse 3 through verse 4, he writes, In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. It would be an understatement to say that David is in an uncomfortable spot. Remember the story that I just laid out for you. He's far from home. He's completely alone. He sees no ends to his struggles against the very king of the nation that he grew up in. Remember, he's already been anointed king by Samuel. He's a war hero. He struck down Goliath. Um, but where are those promises now? There's no glory. There's no safety. He has no refuge from Saul's wrath. No power to save himself. In fact, the very successes of David's path hurt him. The very successes in David's past hurt him in the situation that he's in now. When I mentioned chapter 21, he pretends to be insane. The reason why is because the king of Gath thought that David was the war hero that he was supposed to be. He's like, oh, I know David. I know David. He's a great guy. And David, in his fear, pretends madness. <laughs> he feigns madness in order to escape that. And so David hides. And in his desperation, he prays with radical candor. And you don't see this truth about him if you only read the 1 Samuel account. You look in 1 Samuel 22, um, 
it, this is amazing to me. Uh, the narrative doesn't give us any reason to doubt David's confidence or David's hope. It says David does this thing, he goes and he does the next thing. And the narrative tells us where David is geographically, but here he speaks the truth about his emotional state. He speaks the truth about the way that his situations have been bearing down on him. David is tired, and he speaks that truth openly before God. And even though we are discovering this, let, let me be clear, God already knew all of this. David is not bringing any new revelation to God about his circumstances, but in prayer, in speaking out this truth, something beautiful happens. Because speaking the truth of his circumstances allows David, it allows us, to refresh and recenter our relationship with God. And in order to show this, let me ask you a couple of questions. How many of you were greeted by someone, either this evening or maybe a day previous at work, and this person asked you the question, how are you? Very simple question. We all hear it all the time. Now, how many of you, upon hearing that question, responded with something along the lines of good, busy, tired? If it was me this evening, I was probably excited and a little bit nervous. And then you immediately turn the question on to the other person. And you wait for them to answer. Then you go about your day. And this isn't bad, necessarily. Sometimes you only have a minute before the timer counts down and you have to come back in. But in what situations do you answer with more detail? If you were to look at my life, you'd see a graph where the closer my relationship is with a person, the more likely I am to discuss the details of my life, to get into the nitty gritty of what actually is going on in my heart. But we so often disconnect prayer from this basic principle of communication. We are speaking to God. We are communicating with God. We are building up a relationship when we talk to God. And David could have said, well, God, this has been a tough couple of months. But no, he speaks as though God is present, is close to him. His relationship with God, in fact, is so close. They're so tight that David can say to God, no one cares for my soul. It almost seems sacrilegious to say that to God, the very one person who clearly does care for your soul. But David knew that to say anything less would be disingenuous to where he was at. This isn't easy. It is very difficult to feel as if you can truly be honest with God about what's in your heart. Because our hearts are ugly. And I so often feel the need to sand down the rough edges of my heart before coming to God in prayer. I don't want to admit those places where I've struggled, where I've sinned, where I've been hurt, where the situation feels like it's too much for me. So how do we get past this? How can we be this honest with God? And to overcome this, an honest look at our situation isn't going to be enough. We need to speak the truth, not just about our circumstances, but we also need to speak the truth about God. This is the second part of what prayer says. It speaks honestly about who God is. And this is a key part because it puts our situation into context. David is in one hand holding up the disaster 
of his situation. All the sorrow that he feels inside. And on the other hand, he is able to hold up the very character of God. And he attributes to God power and love, mercy and salvation. This idea is most clearly seen in the turning point of this psalm. Let's read verses four and five. He says, look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of living. In one moment, he honestly evaluates his lack of a refuge, that there's no safety for him. But he also repeats to himself the truth that there is an even greater refuge present there with him. And this is not merely a spiritual refuge or a wishful refuge. He prays for God's power to be displayed in his very present circumstances. Deliver me from my persecutors, he prays. And later he prays, bring me out of prison. David has confidence, faith in the ability of God, despite his odds, despite his suffering, despite even his own fear. And I wish I was able to pray like that consistently. Truly mean it in my heart, because I can so quickly render prayer powerless, not even believing what I pray. I can pray for blessing, for salvation, for healing, and not even think that anything will actually happen. Often the situation feels like it's out of God's reach. And so when my own failing gets in the way of my relationship with God, Where can I find this confidence like David? Where does David find it? He can speak this way with such confidence before God because he was not the one who started the conversation with God. Let me say that again. David does not start this conversation with his prayer. God reached out to David first. God filled David with his spirit. God led David to grow in his word. All that David is doing is speaking back to God the things which God has already done in David's life. God's character doesn't change. And David knew this. The God who rescued Israel from captivity in Egypt is the very same God who can rescue David from Saul. The God who protected Ruth is the same God who can protect David. David can completely doubt his own strength and rest secure in God who has already claimed himself to be these things. God has already proclaimed himself to David. And friends, prayer is always in response to who God is and what God says. Just like David, we are filled with his spirit. We have access to the very words of God himself. And prayer is the outpouring of those words back to God, back to God who showed up first in our lives, even when we didn't want him, even when we felt like we didn't need him. Now, I work as a teacher, and this part comes with a little bit of homework. I love giving out homework. Because the words of God's truth are not going to magically show up in our minds if we wish them too hard enough. This means that we need to be in the Word. This is vital to our prayer life. To go back to the phone analogy, I actually need to listen to the four voicemails that my wife left me. 
Because if I don't, I will not have a clear grasp on the truth. I won't know what to ask about or ask for. If we attempt to talk to God, but never look to his word, we will not truly ask rightly in our prayers. Healthy prayer always comes from time spent in the word of truth. And so what does prayer say? It speaks the truth. Now we've looked at what prayer is, what prayer says. And finally, let's look at what prayer does. Prayer has an incredible life-changing effect. And there is a great amount of confidence that we can have through observing this psalm because God answers David's prayer here. And when God speaks, beautiful things happen. Worlds come into being when God speaks. And I do not mean this in purely a physical sense with God showing up in big tangible ways, nor do I mean this only in a spiritual sense where we feel God's presence or or feel some semblance of peace. Uh, It is both of these things, but it's actually even more. Let's read together the last two verses of the psalm. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. This is an incredible, incredible passage because there is a really cool physical reality that happens right here in David's life. God answers David's prayer in a mighty and powerful way. In the parallel passage in 1 Samuel 22, David is by himself in that cave for one sentence. Only one sentence. That's it. If you want to turn there with me, you can. 1 Samuel chapter 22. Just going to read the first verse. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. His family comes around him, followed by about 400 men in just the next verse, verse two. David prays here that the righteous will surround me. And this is a powerful reminder of how God answers prayer. Now, we don't know how long David was actually in that cave for. Maybe his prayer was answered immediately with a knock at the door of the cave, right, when he said amen, but most likely not. We are able to see God's providence because we have the benefit of hindsight. But David didn't have that. He had to live in the uncomfortable space between. The space which we all feel, not knowing when our prayers will be answered or if we'll even be able to tell when they have been answered. We don't have the ability to see God's plan for the next few hours, much less the whole of our lives. And so it's good to trust in the power of God, to be encouraged by stories like this, to look back on how he's directly answered prayer. But prayer is not just about waiting for him to show up and meet our need. God's answer is not always what we would choose. And so what do we do in the times where God does not free us powerfully from sin or chooses not to heal someone or when the relationship we want so badly to be mended only grows more broken? Let's look at this psalm 
one last time, focusing on the last verse. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. Now, if you're a huge Bible scholar, maybe an English nerd like my wife, uh, you will notice one major thing in verse seven. It's really important to the context of the psalm. Uh, the tense changes. The tense changes. Now, this goes from present tense, which the entire psalm was in, to future tense. The righteous will surround me. He starts speaking about what God will do. And if I'm being honest, it feels kind of pretentious to pray for what God will do. Why can David talk like this? What, what gives him the right to say what God is going to do for sure? Well, let's think about David's story. He has already been consecrated for the kingship of Israel, of God's own people. He is not going to die here because God's plan wasn't derailed by Saul. And David's hope is back because he transforms here from seeing his present situation from an earthly perspective to seeing it from a godly perspective. This is what prayer does. And this is an amazing thing. Prayer turns our gaze to God. Prayer turns our gaze to God. David no longer looks at himself and fears that God won't listen. He no longer looks at his enemies and sees destruction. His perspective has completely transformed in seven small verses. He finds confidence, a refuge in who God is, in God's strength, his provision, his promises. Though David doesn't know his future, he is able to depend on the promises of the one who does. The term which I mentioned at the very beginning of the sermon, the darkest hour, uh, is actually taken from a proverb credited to an English theologian named Thomas Fuller. Uh, the entire proverb goes like this. The darkest hour is just before the dawn. Church, the sun hadn't dawned yet when David finished praying. He still had to press on through the dark. And trust me, there will be plenty more dark times in David's life. But his eyes were no longer seeing the dark. He was seeing the one who had promised a glorious morning. He didn't know when the day would come, when he would receive the fullness of God's promises. In fact, it wouldn't come for a while yet, but he knew that it was there. And through crying out to God, through trusting God's character, through knowing God's transcendence, David found his hope. But you may be thinking, that's great for David. He was chosen by God, consecrated by a priest, a pretty famous one at that. He has entire books written about him. He has all the promises. But what about me? What about us? I don't think any one of us were set apart to be a great king. Maybe you are a king, and I'd love to meet you afterwards. Um, but I'm not much of anyone, really. I don't have these promises of grandeur. 
But friends, we can have an even greater hope than David because there are even greater promises that have been made to us. There's another prayer that I'd like to turn your attention to. And this prayer is very similar to David's. Uh, In Mark chapter 14, you can turn there if you wish. I'm not going to be quoting directly from it. Um, But in Mark chapter 14, towards the middle of the chapter, uh, Jesus is found praying in the garden at Gethsemane. And while on the surface, this may seem very different from the psalm that we're in, Let's think about the state of the speakers. Both David and Jesus are facing down certain death. The leaders and authorities of the day want to kill both of them at all costs. David feels as if no one cares for his soul. In the garden, even Jesus' closest disciples, they won't even stay awake to pray with him. Each prayer recognizes the might and power of God. In Psalms, He says, you know my way. And Mark, all things are possible for you. Each prayer asks for salvation, for the sting of death to be taken away. But in David's story, the prayer is answered. And in Jesus's, there is no release. He dies a horrific public execution. And to be honest, this feels backwards. Did not Jesus deserve to be heard for his prayer out of anyone? There's a quote that I'd like to read from Timothy Keller. uh, And he says something really profound about this in his book on prayer. He says, sinners deserve to have their prayers go unanswered. Jesus was the only human being in history to deserve to have all of his prayers answered because he lived the perfect life. Yet he was turned down as if he cherished iniquity in his heart. Why? The answer, of course, is the gospel. I love this part of this quote. God treated Jesus as we deserve so that when we believe in him, we can be treated as he deserved. This is our greatest hope, friends. A hope that David couldn't even see yet. The God of all of heaven chose our salvation over the salvation of his beloved son. He chose to answer our prayers, to reach down to us, to bring us into his family all at Christ's expense. The veil the dividing wall to keep the people of Israel out of the presence of God in the temple was completely destroyed when Christ died. And so when you have those moments like David, and they will come when you feel alone, when you feel afraid, when you feel like things will never turn out for good, remember that God has already welcomed you in. Though life is filled with sin and death and suffering, Christ has already overcome it. We have a living hope. We have a secure future. We have a bright sunrise, a bright dawn waiting for us. God has welcomed us into this glorious dawn, into the refuge of his presence with arms outstretched. And though you will feel as if no refuge remains for you, 
you can always pray. Pray as David does. Because when you cry out in dependence, when you speak honestly about your own mess, when you speak honestly about God's power in your own mess, the work of Christ, the already accomplished work, will grant you strength and hope for the future. To close, let me remind you of some of these promises which we have right now because of the work of Christ. Romans 8, 31 through 34, reads as follows. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When we pray, these promises are our confidence. And friends, these have been set in stone. So pray with candor. Pray with dependence. Pray turning your eyes to heaven, knowing that you are forever welcomed before the throne of God. Let's pray together. Father God, we are a broken, sinful people. And yet we cannot thank you enough for the riches of your grace, which are ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, that in your mercy, you pulled us out of the pit. That you reached down to us. You loved us even yet while we were still sinners. I pray, Lord God, that you would continue to work here in mighty ways in this church. Would you continue to make your presence known? I pray, Lord, that as we go from this place, we would pray to you. We would pray knowing the truth about who you are, knowing the truth about the way you love us, the truth about the way you've already called us to yourself, set us apart, given us a bright future. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. We pray all of this in the name of your son who died and who was raised again, that we may have eternal life. We pray in his name. Amen.